Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, author and digital transformation guru, Linda Roth, joins the podcast. Linda is the author of a new book titled Digital Transformation, an Executive Guide to Survive and Thrive in the New Economy. B2B digital transformation is here, and basically you have to build it into your startup or any business. I mean, if you're an existing company, you're going to have to convert and basically migrate to a digital first approach to, to building your business to, to, to thrive in this new economy. It's a great book. And in this episode, we break down Linda's approach on how to build a startup, what we can learn from the not too distant past and really not make the same mistakes, as well as a number of stories of B2B companies that have effectively made, effectively made the transition in how they did it. We cover all things digital and transformation in this episode. I think you're really going to get a lot of value out of it. Linda is not only an author, a researcher, but also a practitioner. She's worked with a number of companies as they've gone through digital transformations over the last you know, 20 plus years. So she's no stranger to it. She's lived it. And she's here to share today with you know, lessons learned and basically how to, to take advantage of the, the new economy that we're in. I think you'll enjoy it. Now, on to the interview. Hey, good morning, Linda. Welcome to the podcast. Well, good morning, Brett. Thanks for having me. Now, it's great to have you here. I'm excited to have this conversation and folks have been listening for a while. Now, I talk about digital transformation all the time and the opportunity that's out there for folks. So I'm excited to have you here and I won't spoil everything. So before we get into it, why don't you share with the audience a little bit about your background and, and what you're working on today and we'll, we'll kick it off from there. Okay, well, my background is very extensive. I've been working on a new website and the person that's helping me decided the way they would talk about it is that I'm a pioneer in information technology. <laughs> and, and that's pretty true. And I really just fell into it. When I was graduating from high school, which was some time ago in the early years of information technology, and the colleges were just starting to have degrees. And they must have gone to high school counselors and said, if you have people that don't know what they want to do, put them in the IT program. Because I went to my high school counselor and said, I, my dad wants me to go to college. I don't want to go to college. I don't know what I want to do. So he goes, why don't you take up the IT curriculum at the junior college? I'm like, he, and he goes, you'll get a good job in two years. I said, that sounds like the ticket to me. <laughs> <laughs> Works for me too, man. At least you had a semi-plan at that point. <laughs> exactly. So I did it. And the very first class, now again, this is mainframe days, early in the mainframe days, but wireboards were long gone even by them. But the very first day of class, the instructor brings out this wireboard and starts showing you how do you program on a wireboard. And I'm like, oh my God, what am I going <laughs> to it's too late to drop now. <laughs> but it ended up working out. And at the end of when I graduated, I did get the agreed upon good job with, with Ralston Purina at the time as uh, I lived in St. Louis. I, I do now too, but I had a 40 year stint in um, California. <laughs> but I landed a job with Ralston Purina as a developer. And that really got me going because Ralston brought in the newest technology of the day. And so how I ended up getting to California was that I answered an ad for Levi Strauss 
And they were looking for people that had the new technology qualifications and there weren't many of us and I did. And so that was the reason I was hired and eventually made my way out to California and ended up staying for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Just a small road side trip out there, right? (laughs) Right. Just a small road side trip. Right. And during that time, I, I worked for some aerospace companies. I worked with, uh, at the time, it was Hughes Helicopters, now it's McDonnell Douglas Helicopters, but when they were developing the Apache and I was responsible for all the systems, not, not the systems that the pilots used, but all the systems that tracked the contract for the Apache. And, and that was exciting. And, and I worked for Disney for a while, that was fun. And, and then I started consulting and then I decided to start a software firm because I was consulting on implementing the, it was pre-ERP days, they just called them financial systems, right? Right, right. But, but what I found is that I'm implementing these and they provide a lot of information for the accountants, for the, for the CPAs, for the CFOs and all of that, but management didn't have anything. And I said, we really need to have some sort of system that provides management with information. And so I managed to find a couple of partners that were good tech, good in technology and I designed the system and they wrote it for me. <laughs> Interesting. And so we, we partnered with a big database company at the time was called Cullinet and they were an up and coming. They were, you know, they were a technology company that was growing like that in those days. And so we hooked our star to them and they were, they were very happy. They, they let us, you know, we became partners with them we were in their big conferences that they had every year and they allowed all their salespeople to sell it, to sell the system, but the New York office is the one that really grabbed hold of it. And so we ended up with clients like American Express Bank, Shearson Lehman Hutton. Well, we had First Interstate Bank in California ourselves. Uh, oh, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue was a big client for us. And, and the New York office of that software company sold those for us. And, and so we thought, Gosh, the sky's the limit, you know? Right, right. But then technology changed. And so I went through what today would be called a digital tr- a transformation, right? And technology started to change from the mainframe to client server applications. And the National Standards Boards came, came out and declared that SQL was the standard database to use. Well, as you might guess, we were on mainframe and the software company that we hook our st- hooked our star to was not a SQL-based database. And so okay. they went like that, <laughs> right? And so did we. And so I went to my uh, partners and said, we need to redesign the system on a SQL database. And unfortunately, my partners were in love with technology, the technology they had used. And they, no, 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 we can still sell into this platform. There's plenty of people that have this database and they're going to be using it for a while. And I had secured a million dollars worth of funding for us to redesign the the database but they didn't want to do it so i left and they went bankrupt okay <laughs> predictable right it's an age-old story right we hear this all the time today exactly. that's what the- exactly so so even though i didn't think of it at the time that was probably the seeds of my book but so then i went on and started my consulting business of transforming companies and as we moved into the 21st century transformation became a much bigger deal, right? Initially, transformation was just 
putting in advanced data centers, putting them on good ERP systems, good CRM systems, things like that. It was all internal to the company. But once you got into the 21st century, now you started transformation started being external too. And so what brought me to write the book was I had two clients that were polar opposites. One, the first one was a owner of a marketing company. They were an automotive marketing company that knew that his business was going to fail if he didn't change to become a digital marketing company. And he was in the process of wanting to sell it and the value of his business was going down. So he hired me and put me completely in charge of turning that company into a digital marketing company. No small task. No, it's not. Not if, right. How, when was, what year was this? This was the end of 2012. Okay. Yeah, 2012. Yeah. So uh, I worked there 2012 through the end of 20, at the end of 2012 through the end of 2015. I, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't uh, finally finalize our agreement and what I was going to do until like early December of 2012. Got it. Okay. It was really all of 2013, all of 2014 and all of 2015. So even at that point in 2012, this, the person with the digital was a little bit ahead of the curve of realizing where it was going. Right. Cause I think, Oh, nine, 10, we started to see some of the digital marketing capabilities, but it was still an afterthought. So somebody thinking was right on the edge and, and trying to recall, were they that cutting edge at that point thinking that they wanted to transform or were they trying to catch up at that point? They were doing a little bit of catch up. They were okay. doing a little bit of catch up because they, they were the ones that sent out the postcards for the maintenance on your, on your vehicles. Right. Okay. So first of all, uh, several years before that new vehicles had sensors on them and would display on your dashboard that you needed an oil change or that your tires were low and on air, right? So they started losing a little bit of value, but the, the dealers didn't know. And just because it flashed on the dashboard didn't mean you would go to the dealer. And the job of the company I was working for was to bring the owner back into the dealership where they bought the car. Got right? it, okay. Not, not to go to an independent repair facility. So if it just flashes up on your dashboard, you could end up at the local oil change Right, right. As most people probably do, right? Yeah. Right, right. As opposed to going to your dealer, which is where they wanted you to go. Interesting. Okay. So, so they had started a little bit of a slide because they just sent out postcards. And the problem he had was he took in a whole lot of information. And what they were known for was their algorithms that could fairly accurately predict where the vehicle was in its life cycle. Right. And, and that was, that was credit critically important to marketing literature, because if you send it out too early, they're not going to pay attention. If you send it out too late, they've already had the oil change or whatever maintenance they've had to have done. So the timing was important. And and so they charged a lot of money for these little postcards they sent out rather than charging for the storage and, and processing of the data, they were charging like $3 for a postcard, which took into everything. Well, in 2013, new, the technology called telematics had oh, come yeah. out and now all of the information that you were getting on your dashboard was going to be transmitted to the dealers and manufacturers. So now we knew exactly where the vehicle was in its life cycle. All those algorithms became worth zero. Zero. Yep. 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 <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so their value proposition was gone. But when I went in there, I said to them, I said, it doesn't matter the gold in your company is all the data you have 
about the behavior of the vehicle, the behavior of the client, because they may be, they may get a postcard that says you need an oil change, but when they get in there, there's other issues, right? And now you've got the maintenance records for these vehicles that you're tracking. So, so I said, that's where the gold is. And what we need to do, not only do we need to change your marketing into being digital marketing rather than just sending postcards, but we need to get new products and services because you're not going to be able to charge $2 for a postcard anymore. You're going to be lucky if you can charge 50 cents for them. Right. And just like I preached to everybody, you need to find something that you can get on a subscription basis because you need your clients. You need to build fan club. You need to build your tribe that's coming back to you all the time. So, so what we ended up doing was we created two business intelligence apps that were for the dealers and the manufacturers that gave them information about how each individual vehicle was performing and where it was, not just a group. And then also how their the feedback on their, their maintenance crews, individuals that worked on the vehicles and things like that. So that's what saved the company. And within six months after I finished, he sold the company as a technology company to a PE firm that was doing a roll-up of oh, those interesting. And he got a he got a good job on the board that roll up and was happy as a clam. Yeah. I mean what I love about that that story and even your journey, right? You you've been through the progression or the evolution of the technology and we've gone from the one stop to where you invented or were part of the program that added on to the early days of ERP, which right now you know, six months ago, we were probably at the height when we think about it from at least from a B2B standpoint, the sales tech stack and the mark tech stack, right? There's last count 10,000 different applications or software that you could use to bolt on to everything. Mm-hmm. And it was solving a specific problem, but where that's going to go, that's going to go away <laughs> at some Correct. point it's right. And what I really loved about that last story and thinking about it from, you know, a startup and a founder perspective is they moved what they thought was valuable was the technology, right? Or the ability to predict when the thing, all of a sudden it was disrupted. Everybody's got access to that data and no longer have value, but you figured out how to wrap the value around it. And I don't think there's one in the, what we call legacy or enterprise space. They're so wrapped up in what they're doing today. It's hard to even think about making that pivot. But even on the startup scale where people are like, hey, we got the greatest technology, one of the things I always like to say is, man, what what else are you going to, what services are you going to add around that technology? Because somebody's going to copy it, right? And That's exactly right. Five years ago, 10 years ago, it probably would have taken a couple of years to duplicate, but now you probably got to give somebody a three-month head start and they can copy what you're doing. So I know I took us off track a little bit, oh, but no, I think it's such right. a great lesson. It is. And back to writing the book. So, so that was client number one, that they were like the ideal client. They called me, they knew what they had to do. And they said, Linda, just do it. Right. Client number two was a traditional B2B. They are a metals distributor and they resisted, resist, resist. No, no, no. We're a traditional company. It's never going to change. We're B2B. And I kept saying, yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> you don't understand. Yes, it is. And so I had those two in my head when I went to write the book. And I said, I am writing to the metals company. Yeah. 
And the interesting part of that is we were talking offline a little bit that you, you, you were thinking about this in 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is amazing before we knew the digital and the transformation was coming. You know, I, I we, we joked in our last conversation that, you know, screaming from the mountaintops, Hey, it's coming. You guys have to be ready. And everybody's like, no, we're different. Our industry is not going to fall that way. And uh, you know, I always used to use the, 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 the analogy of the used car business, right? That you used to have to either call or go on site to find out what they had in inventory. Fast forward, not only did they start to add to the, had started with stock photos with the inventory, then there's the actual photos. Now you can actually online buy a $50,000 used car, have it sent to your house within seven days, decide if you like it or not and ship it back, right? Right. <laughs> and I know in your book, that was before I read your book that you Kelly blue book was one of your examples. You had a lot of really great examples in your book, but it's, it's where we're going. And so I just want to stop for a second. And I know we teased the book, but yeah, you it's out now called digital transformation. And, and folks, I'd highly recommend this. I think, you know, we talk a lot about where the digital, it's not even a revolution. It's more of an evolution at this point. And what Linda, I think, does really well is kind of walks a little bit. We touched a little bit on the, the context of it, right? Where it started the four stages or the four evolu- variations of the, the digital revolution or the industrial revolution, just to provide context that what we're going through right now is not new. Right. <laughs> it's a it's not different new. version exactly. of it, but understanding the past so you can think about the future, I think was, was really helpful. So one, I, I didn't want to forget to talk that I, I really did enjoy your book and I showed you before the the notes that, right. there that that there is good advice and you know the other piece and then then we can move on was that you wrote it in in four parts right so mm-hmm. you made it easy for the reader hey if you just want to get to the five-step process to think about digital transformation you jump to the end but again I'd, I'd highly encourage folks that are in this space or thinking about this space to to give it a look because I think you'll one you'll find it interesting and two you know learn from the mistakes of others right <laughs> Right. Well, and that's that's one of the things I think is important and why even though I say in the introduction you can you can just skip to the fourth section if you want, but I think that the the first section gives some historical context and shows mistakes. I, you know, it it was definitely hard to find examples companies that didn't make it from being a 19th century IE 1800s company to moving in but one thing I, I didn't think about what, cause I was looking for exact companies, but if you just looked at industries, the people that had telegraph companies did not end up being the people with telephones. Right. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And for the most part, the, the ones that I did find were care, were carriage companies two carriage companies that made it through to building automobiles and they still eventually failed. But I did find those, but, th- but that's the second one. For the most part, people that made carriages and wagons and everything else in the 1800s, 17 and 1800s, did not survive and become car manufacturers. And, yeah. and even the two that did for a little while did not become the car manufacturers we have today. One lasted until the 1960s, and the other one didn't make it through the Great Depression. It's crazy. And, and I want to take a step back there and ask you why you think that is. But the one example I think you used was Sears, right? Sears and Amazon. Yes, I did a big, actually, 
in the book, I did the comparison between Sears and Amazon. And recently I wrote an article and did a comparison between Sears and Emerson Electric. So I'll quickly go through the two of them and why. Sears to Amazon was what I found interesting. I had done an interview with a gentleman that had, it was on the board of, uh, I mean, a member of National Association of Corporate Directors and he became the, the chair of a program where they do an uh, study every year and write a big program about it. So in 2019, they had done one on digital disruption and what boards needed to pay attention to. And so I interviewed him and his name is Kelvin Westcott. And one of the things that he said to me at the end of our interview, he said, you know, Sears was the Amazon of its day. And so that prompted me to go back and look at the Sears story. And what I found interesting was Sears started in, I think it was like 1897 and Amazon incorporated in 1995. So they were like exactly a hundred years apart. Interesting. They were both started by a man, right? The single man and Sears, his goal was to sell something to the interior of the United States. He had recognized that the interior of the United States was an unserved area because stores weren't out there yet. It was very rural right? And the post office had just gotten really going. And so he decided that he could do a catalog and send it using the post office out to people in, that lived in the interior of the United States and he could sell them. And he started with selling watches. That's what he started. I didn't know with. that. Interesting. Okay. And by the time that he started to grow, he was selling houses and cars through his catalog. And the first Sears store, retail store, didn't open until 1927. Oh, I didn't realize that either. Interesting. Yes. So then you skip to Amazon. And so Jeff Bezos, same thing. He wanted to sell something, anything on the internet to prove that you could sell product on the internet. So he picked books. It was an easy thing to sell. And so then he started growing and growing his platform and everything and started selling more and more things. So now Amazon sells everything in the world, except I don't, I don't think they sell cars yet, but Close. They could if they everything. wanted to. They could if they wanted to. <laughs> but everything else, Amazon sells, right? And and then Amazon has recently opened, well, they partnered with retail. They bought up Whole Foods Whole food, yeah. so that they could do the grocery. And then they partnered with Kohl's as a return facility and, and some other things. I don't know whether they'll eventually buy it. But the the two you know stories kind of weave the same way. And my question that I pose in the book is why did Sears with all its wealth and, you know, cause it became a captain of industry in the 20th century. It's not like it was a small company. Right. Why did those people not think to do what Jeff Bezos did even after Jeff Bezos started? I mean, when Jeff Bezos first started, Amazon was up and down and losing money and didn't know whether they were going to get started. Why didn't Sears jump in? Sears could have grabbed it and destroyed Amazon just like that in the 1990s. And they didn't. Why? Right? I, is I don't it, know yeah, why. I, I mean, I've got theories, but I'd love to get your, I mean, I think you get, you fall in love with your revenue streams and, Correct. you know, trying to that big of a transformation would disrupt the way you've done business, right? Because I think Montgomery Ward kind of fit into that category. They were a catalog, a little bit different, but they didn't see, or if they saw the future of online, they didn't, they didn't get there quick enough. No. Well, and, and they were struggling to keep up with Sears, but I mean, Sears had big retail stores and because even by the 80s or 90s, I think Montgomery Ward had had closed all of its retail stores. So they 
they were struggling. I don't know whether they could have made it or not, but Sears could have. I mean, in the in the 1990s, Sears was still a juggernaut, right, in retail. And now they're all but gone. Right. It's a real estate play for the most part, right? Correct. <laughs> Correct. And then the second thing I did was recently there was an article in the St. Louis um, Business Journal about Emerson Electric. And I read it and I'm like, oh, another great comparison to Sears because Emerson... Emerson Electric is an engine uh, is an energy company, but they also, in the later part of the 19th century, I mean the 20th century, started um, making controls for uh, energy plants and stuff like that that monitor everything that's going on in the plants. And so they had those as products too, in addition to just energy. And they have gotten into because the article in the St. Louis Business Journal was. The, the best kept secret of Emerson was that they're one of the biggest software companies in the United States. They have softwares of over $3 billion. Hmm. Now it's very niche software, right? It's not software that every company buys. When, when they first started out, they just started making the devices that they had as smart devices. So now they had smart devices out there that were monitoring everything, gathering all this data, just like, the vehicles had started gathering, having sensors and gathering all the data, right? And so then they then they wrote software applications for their customers that had these sensors to be able to see what was going on and get reports off of those sensors. So that's how they first started software. But now they've been buying software companies. And they have, the article said it's 3 billion and something in total software sales. And a little over a billion of that is software sales that are not connected to their devices. That oh, other interesting. Software. Okay. Right. And now they're eleven billion dollar company, so software is still not their major th- thing, right? But my point in all that is here's an and Emerson started in the 1890s. That was the other point. Emerson started in the 1890s. So here's another 19th century company that became a behemoth in the 20th century. And in the 21st century, they started seeing what they were gonna have to do. And they're moving into software. They've become a technology company. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize they were that old. And I bet you'd be really hard pressed to find any other company that's lasted that long and had that level of success over that time frame. Interesting. Kind of Microsoft has kind of reinvented themselves a little bit, right? With moving from the hardware and to the more cloud-based. And I don't know, I didn't look, haven't looked at it recently, but their market cap was number one for a bit. I know they're still in the top three, I'm sure, which is kind of under the radar. People don't talk about them as well because they've been around forever, but they figured out how to reinvent or transform themselves to not only stay relevant, but be one of the leaders. So Right. They are still up there in the top, especially in business, but Apple and Amazon have got bigger market caps than Microsoft does. It's crazy. I mean, it, it, which is actually a really good pivot point for us now, because I think there's a lot to be learned from the past and where we're at in the transformation. You've won, you've grown businesses through it, right? In the, at least the last 20, 30 years. So if I'm a, I'm a startup, a founder, you know, where, where should I be looking? Where are my opportunities? One. And then two, if I'm starting to build a company, right? Because a lot of your work in the book is around transformation, helping companies pivot to being a digital first company. So I would love to get your perspective and what your advice would be to, you know, startup founders that are, are starting their journey now and 
you know, maybe what to avoid? That's a broad question, but I'd love to get your opinion on this. Well, you, you, you've got to start as a digital company. And I don't, I don't care what you're in. I don't care whether you're in service. I don't care whether you're in retail. I don't care whether you're B2B. You start as a digital company. And first of all, it's so much easier now, right? I mean, a lot of the things that you're going to use as a digital company are free or near free that you can start out with. Whereas if you're going to start a traditional company, you've got to lease space. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you have to do a lot of advertising. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things you have to do. And, the, and they all cost money. But with, with Facebook, YouTube, and your own website, you can, you can create and start a business and build it. Build it. You obviously have to have something that you've at least got a niche. And, and that's the other thing is I would say, look at niches. Uh, you and I were talking about before. So one company that I profile in the book is, and, and she, her company name now is Charm Patterns. But she started out just teaching people how to sew. And I've this been a hobby of mine since I was a teenager. So I enjoy sewing. And I can't remember exactly how I ran across her. I think, uh, but initially I came to know her in like 2012, I think, around there. And I had I had purchased, I think what I had done, she designed patterns for a couple of the major pattern companies. And I had bought one and I had noticed it had a little picture on it, right? And, and it said patterns by Gertie. Her name is Gertie. And so I ended up Googling her and I found a blog that she had. And so on her blog, she would write how to address some of the more difficult things in the patterns that she had and, and, and other patterns that she was making that she would show. And anyway, her niche is she designs retro styles, what everybody calls mid-century, the 50s, 1950s and 1960s styles, which are getting very popular. But sewing was considered a dying art, right? And, right. and I, I can't tell you how many people she's taught to sew, thousands. But anyway, fast forward, she, she did that. She, so she was designing those patterns. She started a fabric line. And so I bought some of her fabrics and she came out, she came out with her own line of patterns. It was called Charm Patterns. And so because I was following her, I bought the first two that she came out with right away. And, and then she started designing more patterns. And one of the things that she started doing was instead of having a traditional pattern, which is you get a dress, right? And you, you might have a sleeve variation or a few things, but, you know, or maybe two different skirts on it, but nothing much. And you want to, you want a pair of pants or something else, you got to buy another or a blouse to go with a suit that you bought, you got to buy another pattern, right? She would have a whole bunch of pieces and you could mix and match, match them. So one of like the third pattern she came out with, she called it the night and day dress and you could make 72 different dresses out of it. She had like six different sleeve options, two different bodices, three or four collars, two, three skirts, and you could mix and match everything, right? So, so she was changing kind of the way you, you did patterns. And so she had a year or two of just having her patterns. And then she had started Facebook groups. So she'd have a Facebook group for every pattern she had. And you could get on and ask questions. Everybody showed what they were working on. And she also did private trainings. And she wrote four books. She also has four books. And there's patterns in all of her books also. 
So then right before the pandemic, and I mean literally the month before the pandemic, she started her Patreon site. So now she's turning all of these followers into subscription payers. You pay so much a month and she releases a new small pattern every month. So one month you'll get a skirt. The next month you might get a bodice or you'll get different sleeve variations or you'll get, she's done one thing that she called the swing coat. Last month we got a little capelet. So you have some sort of outerwear, but she ends up where she integrates it. So like last year she created with her charm patterns, a skirt pattern that had a pencil skirt and a full skirt. Then in October of last year, she created a bodice that went with those skirts. So you could make them into a dress. So you could make a dress with a full skirt or a dress with a pencil skirt, right? And, and then in February of this year, she came out with a little capelet to go over the dresses. And then this month she came out with a pair of pants and you can take the waistband off the pants and put the bodice on and make a jumpsuit out of it. So she intertwines everything. So she, she, she gets you hooked now. You've got to have her patterns, the charm patterns. You want to stay on her subscription site to keep getting all of the stuff that comes on the subscription site. And so in a year, she has gone from zero to about 4,200 followers paying a subscription fee. That woman is raking in money. Yeah, I I love that that story for so many reasons, and one because it's just not. I know you niche niche, you know. Right. I always like to say riches in the niches, so I go with niches. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the 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 story in is I think it, it's around content, right? And it's digital, mm-hmm. and so to your point earlier, that says everything. Building a digital company, people are consuming it, whether it's B to B, B to C. And, and I love in the book, the B2B is there are no unique snowflakes, right? It's right. <laughs> every industry is going to transform. It's just a matter of time and how people consume and digital and content are here to stay. But it's it's pretty amazing the number of folks that have not adopted that yet, right? I mean, I'm assuming you, you see it every day. I'd love to get your perspective. Am I, am I interpreting that right? You have to have content and it's got to be digitally driven if you want to reach new customers and existing customers. Right. And so, you know, it's changed sales and this, the the pandemic sped everything up dramatically, but it was coming anyhow, which which was the point of the book. And, you know, I had a B2B customer that kept insisting that it wasn't going to change because they were B2B. And I said, really? I said, well, all of those managers and purchasing people in your, the businesses you sell to, I said at home, they're on Amazon and on Etsy 100%, yep. and everything else. And they want to be on your website. They don't want to have to be going back to their office to order stuff. They're out in their plant or wherever they are. One story that we didn't talk about and I didn't, I don't think I used in the book very much, but in 2009, and the reason it's important, the, the year is important because the tab of when the iPad came out. Okay. But but I was hired by a grower and they were having problems with the what they call ranch managers, which are the people that run the acreage, right? And, and so each section that you might think of as a plant in a traditional company, but an agriculture company, it was called a ranch and it'd be X number of acres of fields of particular crops. Okay, so these people, these ranch managers are managing millions of dollars of crops. 
And you have to be on that every day. They're out in those fields every day, looking at the weather forecast, looking at what's going on and what changes they have to make to the soil, water, you know, covering everything. And, and so they're out there and they have to order stuff. And so what do they do? They're on their cell phones all day long out in these fields, ordering pro- things that they need, fertilizer, different types of water. They need racking to put some cover over because there's going to be a big storm coming or whatever it is. And all those bills then from those suppliers go into the centralized AP department. And then the centralized AP department is trying to figure out which ranch ordered it. So they're making the ranch managers come into the office two times a week to go through invoices that are minimum 30 days old. And these guys are sitting there going, I don't know, charge it to me. I might've bought it. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Right. So there was this tension going on between the office and the ranch managers. First thing I did was, okay, I need to go out to ranches and follow some ranch managers around for a while. So I spent two days out working with ranch managers, learning what they do. And that's how I learned all that. And so I decided the only way we can do this is we have to make it so either from their phone or, or at least their truck, because every one of them, their truck would be just a few feet away from them. Right. And every truck had a, had a ruggedized laptop in it with at least cellular internet connection. So I finally said, okay, the only way we're going to solve this is they've got to be able to manage everything on their computers in their trucks, because that's the most they're going to do. So I ended up designing a system that would assume we put together a web site that they could access on their laptops in the truck. And then they could at least log what they had ordered, right? So that the AP department would have an idea when the invoice came in. Well, just as I'm finishing up this study and, and laying this out, the iPad is introduced. And I said, Time there, is it everything. Is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> And I, I didn't stay with them. I don't know whether they ever did. But when I left, I appended my study and I said, the iPad, that's what you need. Yeah. No, I, and that's what I love about these stories is, you know, these are six or seven years before it's, it's not even mainstream because there's a lot of businesses that need to be able to do this that still aren't doing this today. So, you know, I keep coming back that I've been on my soapbox. There's never been a better time to start a company, right? I'll everything's been basically leveled. You're starting from scratch. The legacy companies may have the customers, but they're going to have a hard time becoming nimble and, and working tighter. Some will, some, I mean, your, your book shows a few do, but a few do, just, but not many. Yeah. So the opportunity is there, man. If you see a problem, think about how, you know, how to go fix it and back to the point digital and what we haven't even talked about. Maybe that's a good last topic because I do want to be respectful of your time is data, right? Digital drives data, which allows you to make better decisions. So maybe that's a good final topic for us. I'd love to get your perspective, right? That's kind of the third wheel of this. So uh, well, I'll, I'll do one last story. And this is there you a, go. Perfect. And I, they're not in the book, but it's a retailer that I visit a lot because if you haven't guessed by now, especially with sewing, clothes are my thing. And so I buy clothes too, right? <laughs> Normally I would sell more than I, I would purchase, but there's this chain called White House Black Market that I've gotten attached to over the last few years. And part of it is their online store. I never, I can't say I never go into store because I do return. So now we get to the integration of traditional retail with online retail, right? But one of my big bugaboos about traditional retailers that have gone online 
is they'll just put a single picture of their product. And so like with white, and I'll, I'll do White House Black Market and Mood Fabrics briefly, but White House Black Market, like if you look at Nordstrom's and Nordstrom's is not a small store and not a cheap no, one either. Right, right. But you go look at Nordstrom's online store and you get one picture, maybe two, might show the front and the back. But what White House Black Market does is they have multiple pictures and then they have a how to wear it section where they'll have anywhere from four to eight different combinations. Now it's all, it's all stuff that you buy in their store, right? Sure. But the shoes, the blouse that goes with the skirt or pants or with the suit, right? Uh, a coat that's going to go with it, but jewelry, they've got jewelry too. And so they'll show the jewelry that'll go with this outfit. So you end up with anywhere from four to, to six or eight ensembles. So, so what does it do? Not only does it show you how this one skirt or one pair of shoes that you looked at that you liked, how you might pair it with other things, but then you sit there and you start pulling them out and putting them into your shopping bag, right? So you get the whole outfit. So you get a lot of what you would get when you walked into the store and had the saleswoman, you know, and you might go to the rack and pick out a skirt and the saleswoman would go, oh, well, here's this blouse right. or here's this jacket or here's this shoes. Well, the online is doing that for you. And so that's my big thing about online stores is you must replicate the experience the customer has in the store. You can't just have pictures. You have to replicate it. So then Mood Fabrics is another place I shop because these days there aren't very many retail fabric stores to go to anymore. You've got to shop for, for fabric online. Mood Fabrics became popular because there was a cable TV show called Project Runway and Mood supplied all of the fabric. And when I lived in Los Angeles, it was real easy because there was a mood retail store in Los Angeles. But when I moved back to St. Louis, there's no mood fabrics in St. Louis. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's one in Los Angeles and there's one in New York and that's it. And so I started getting online. Well, what mood does is they'll have four or five pictures of the fabric. They'll have the flat picture. They'll show how it drapes. They'll have a close-up so you can see details of the weave and details of the of of the uh, print or wh whatever it is, right? So you can get an idea of that. They'll have a full description of how it drapes and what you can use it for, what it's good for. And now they've started putting out videos where they'll have somebody in the office and they'll have a mannequin there and they'll start draping the fabric over the mannequin so you can actually see it. And it'll be maybe a 30 or 45 second video. And they'll talk about what you can make out of it and show you how it drapes and, and things like that. And so that is what I call a real integration. You've got to bring the store experience to the customer online. You can't just show pictures. And we were talking earlier about cars, buying cars online. And what's funny is in the book, at the time that I wrote that section on the book, Carbana had just gotten started. Now you've got a whole bunch of Carbana copycats, right? Yep. But you and I were talking about how now you can go completely online. And even if you want to buy from a traditional dealer and order a car like I generally do, you can go online and configure the whole thing. And you can see everything. They've got 3D pictures. They, they show everything. They show how it works. And Carbana is the one that really started that because you can buy a used car online, like we talked about online, have it delivered to your house. And, and if you don't like it, you've got X number of days to send it back. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the part I really like about that we hadn't really talked about was the experience aspect of it, right? You can do things digitally and make it easier to use, but improving that customer experience, because you're so right. And again, I'm not a huge shopper, but my family is, and they do like Nordstrom's, but it's typically, well, I'll order these four sizes. I'm not sure which one's going to work right. or what it looks like, knowing I'm going to take them back. And there's probably a whole nother episode we could talk about the online e-commerce being separate from each of the retail store locations and how those, you know, who gets credit for the sale. I mean, that's all, none of the stuff the customer cares about, but it's wreaking havoc on a lot of these retailers and somebody's going to figure it out. It sounds like black market may have already kind of figured it out, but I mean, it's going to be fascinating where retail's heading. Right. Well, they, they're getting more integrated because last year, right before the pandemic started, you could connect with your in-store shopper if you wanted to. Okay. Right. Nice. So, and, and so then, and they had done that right before the pandemic started. And then with the pandemic, they manned those phones. You could, you, you know, even in St. Louis, I could call in-store you know, stylist at 11 o'clock at night and they'd answer the phone and walk me through something if I wanted to. All about and value add, right? Exactly. And so kind of where I see that going is, especially with, with iPads and video, I've been talking to a couple of people about, you don't know how long you're going to be limited. Yeah, the stores are open now, but people aren't coming to them. So bring the real store experience, get a model in the store, right? Ask the customer what they want to look at, have the model put it on, have an iPad there, and show them how it's modeled and everything. I mean, you could you can really do that real time, right, with connecting the store. And then the store can get credit for the sales. So that's, yeah. that's one way to do it. And then quickly, you, we were talking about data. And that's the other reason I like White House Black Market and some other of the big stores. You know, I'll buy something from Nordstrom's and I never get any kind of emails from Nordstrom's. I get at least five emails a day, if not more, from White House Black Market, right? And and the other thing that White House Black Market has done recently is they put together my closet. So everything I buy within seconds after I've ordered it online, it's in my closet. Oh, interesting. And it's pulling out other stuff that I already have that they know I've purchased and other stuff that's at the store showing me how I can put together outfits with stuff that are in my closet. I and that's really clever. It's very clever. And so it gets to having data, right? They've got data. They know what I look at. Well, and, and I mean, you could do this a long time ago. One, one thing Nordstrom's, I think it was Nordstrom's I bought them with. But a few years ago, I was still living in California. One night, I couldn't sleep and I'm just shop on, or at least look. And I had found this pair of shoes and they were unique. What I liked about them was they were gray patent and then they had plat and platform, had a yellow had a yellow platform on it. And so the, within the next, I didn't buy them that night. I resisted. And within the next week, every website I went to popped up. Those <laughs> yep. So finally I said, okay, okay, okay. I bought them. <laughs> so I buy the shoes. So then some number of weeks later, I'm looking at a pattern on something I want to make. And I pull out this pattern from the 1980s that is done in two tones. So it's a suit and the skirts in one color and the box jackets in another. And then it's got a reversible swing coat to it that, you know, you've got both colors. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, what colors do I want to make these out of? And all of a sudden I go, Linda, you've got a pair of shoes that are gray and yellow. Go get gray and yellow fabric. So uh, I'm in Los Angeles then. So I did go to one of the Los Angeles retail stores and I took my shoes with me and I said, 
find me a wool, a yellow wool and a gray wool that'll match these shoes. And today I have an outfit in yellow and gray. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we're heading, right? It's just people figure out first. So you want to capture, and there's so much data you can capture for marketing. Uh, If, you know, and that's what you've got to do. And say the last last bit on that is because I, you call it out specifically, I think, in the book about data to insights, right? Everybody mm-hmm. got a boatload of data and there's nothing they can do with it. They don't know what to do with it. Turned it into insights and that's where the real value and, and the power is. That's correct. Well, and we had talked earlier about the client I had that was an automotive marketing company. And one of the things that we did to uh, increase their values so that they could sell the company was we created business intelligence apps that use the data. And, and the very first day I went into that client, I said, the gold in your company is all the data in those databases. And so we built two business intelligence apps that we sold on subscription basis. So I would use two words, subscription and data. <laughs> gold in them, their hills, as so they that's say, exactly right? right. Without a doubt. And you can have a very small niche or niche and, and if, you're, if you're mining them with data and, and subscription, because even Mood Fabrics now, I, I, I'm not on a subscription with them, but I buy a lot from them anyway. But you can join their subscription and you get swatches of fabric. If they would let me pick the swatches I wanted, I'd join it in a second. But they pick the swatches. And so I don't uh, want to pay it. But they're my go-to fabric store anyway. But you got you got to think outside the box as to what you can have on a subscription. I think almost anything can be on a subscription if you think about it the right way. I had the founder uh, Penji on here, and they do graphic design, right? And it's hard mm-hmm. to differentiate yourself because there's some really good drafting, and they do really good work. But where he looked at it was, I can differentiate based on pricing, right? So for a flat fee, monthly fee, you get unlimited graphic design with the caveat being you can only do one at a time, but literally in a month, you just keep the projects going and it's a reoccurring revenue stream. It's not bunched up. I mean, it's genius. So I think there's a lot of a lot of businesses should be trying to figure out how they move at least a portion, if not all of their business to the subscription type of a model and there's ways to do it it's just different than the way they think about it today which comes back to our theme which is there's a lot of opportunity out there folks think about it how you can do something differently in these these older industries and you you got a good chance well and and i use the word reimagine because the second step in my five-step process is reimagine your business as a 21st century business so if you're a startup start thinking of it that way if you've got a traditional business You've got to sit down and throw out all the old stuff and and just reimagine what what you can do and what what your company can be and and it's content. The most important things are content and subscription. I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, back to Miss Gertie, right? And I don't know whether I had mentioned it, but as soon as the pandemic hit, she could have lost her whole business because yeah. the pattern companies couldn't print her patterns anymore because they were all closed. Right. So she couldn't issue those. She got on YouTube every day for from the time we closed in what mid-March until the end of June. She was on YouTube every day for an hour talking to her fan base. Just open conversation. 
build that tribe. And yeah, we, I guess we were offline talking about that. It's not only the value of you providing content, but all those like-minded folks that now help each other and engage with each other and create a much stronger tie to the brand. And it's easier said than done, but it's, it comes back to (laughs) the content piece of it. And I, I tell folks, it's no longer an option, right? If you want to grow a business, you're in business, value added content, just not content for the sake of content is what you need to be able to do. And if you can do it better than others, you're going to have a leg up, which ties back to the digital and the data. And you can see where the the story goes, right? Exactly. And when she did that, what did it cost her? Nothing. YouTube was free. It could cost her an hour of her time. She's sitting at home anyway. She couldn't do her business, right? So she was sitting at home anyway, and she was given tips. And what ended up growing out of that two and a half months or so that we were all online with her. Everybody was alone. Everybody was thrown into that. And she was a friendly voice and she made friends. You know, we all became friends and she made friends and she gave out lots of tips. She would talk about undergarments to wear underneath the clothes that she designed. She would talk about the shoes that she had. A lot of people get into styling their hair in retro styles. I'm not into that, but she would go through hairstyles. She just went through everything. And she was, I would say for some women, she was the voice that kept them sane in those first few months. Yeah. And guess what? It's going to keep growing, right? Eventually we'll exit the pandemic, but you know, she's built the business and the tribe and it's just a great, a great example. She still has one YouTube a month for her tribe. Okay. That's a great blueprint. I mean, that's what I'm trying to highlight in episodes now is what is the blueprint of the future? And the reoccurring themes are kind of a lot of things you highlighted around the digital, digital, it's got to be digital, the data, and then the, the relationship and the experience. It sounds so simple and intuitive, but it's really hard for companies to, to do this. So if you can crack that code, you're going to have a good chance of success. It, it is, it is hard. And it's hard for almost everybody, even the startups. But if you look at some of the ones that are big market cap companies today, like Netflix, and, and I profile that about how Blockbuster blew it. Because yep. Netflix, when those two guys were designing their technology, they first offered that technology to, to Blockbuster for $5 million. Can you believe it? Yeah. Nothing surprises me anymore, but whoa, that's a big miss. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I mean, that's like striking, being the third out in the World Series and losing the World Series, right? And, and, and then they had another shot at it. They had another swing. A year or some number of months, a year later, the Netflix came back to Blockbuster when they had proven and they, and they were now mailing it out and proven that it was, would work. And now they had upped it to, I don't know, 25 million, 100 million, but it was still in the millions, not in the billions, right? To sell the Blockbuster and Blockbuster turned them down again. Again, wow. <laughs> yeah, usually you don't get that second chance and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But again, right. there's a lot of these hindsight's twenty twenty that if we could learn today from the past and different technologies, but fundamentals are, are still the same. Exactly, because so. where is Blockbuster and Netflix today? Right. I think the last Blockbuster store location just closed or is about to close. And I think it was more for sentimental reasons why it was still out there. But yeah, it's they haven't been competitive in a long, long time. Long time. 
Right. So awesome. Right. All right. Well, Linda, I'm not letting you get away. I ask the same, every guest the one last question that we'll wrap up on today. And maybe we'll have you back on here for a part two and we can go into some more of the details because I love, I love these stories and I think they're so helpful. Is, what is one thing that you would highly recommend? It could be professional, personal, what's top of mind for you these days? Well, I guess, and, and I can't think of the names of the books, but you can Google them. There's a whole lot of them. Uh, content marketing. I would learn content marketing. And and I'm not the only one that's written a digital transformation book. I happen to like mine better. <laughs> because, because here's the thing. When I was writing, when I was starting to write it, I purposefully did not listen to any of the books. I listened to a couple of samples. And I found, at least in the samples that they were putting out, they'd start talking about technology. And so I would say my, my parting thing is digital transformation is not about technology. Digital transformation is business transformation. What you have to look at is how is the customer changing? I like it. No, I think you're absolutely right. And way too often in many things, we technology is the solution or the answer. And it's not, it's more of the enabler of what you're you're Correct. trying to do. Oh, that's really good advice. I and again, I'm getting better at content, right? I do the I've got the podcast, but I really need to be doing more with, you know, the the interviews with with you folks. And so I'm getting better, right? But you're right, there is absolutely no substitute for providing value added content. So, and lastly, Linda, if there's folks that want to, you know, check you out, connect with you, learn more about you, where, where can they find you and best place to find the book on Amazon, I'm guessing, but yeah, the best place to find the book is on Amazon. The full title is digital transformation an executive guide to survive and thrive in the new economy. You can Google that uh, or, you know, search we'll it on Amazon show notes too. <laughs> yeah. Or search, search on my name is probably the easiest, which is spelled Linda L Y N D A. And then I have my web talking about content. I'm trying to get my website up and going. So it's my new website is under construction. So the best thing is to email me at Linda L Y N D A at L J R C S.com. Got it. And again, we'll put this in the show notes for easy reference, folks, you can come look at. But again, Google too, I think, as I found with authors with your middle initial, right? It's J. So it's Linda J. Roth is the Roth. easiest mm-hmm. way from Google. Perfect. That's probably the awesome. easiest way when, when you go, either Google that or on Amazon, put that in, it'll bring the book up. Awesome. Well, Linda, thank you very much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. It was, a, I love sharing and, t- and talking about the stories and thank you for providing the, the perspective. I think it's incredibly valuable and folks go check out the book. Again, if you want to learn from the past, but look towards the future, this is, this is a good book for you. Thanks very much, Brett, for the opportunity. Right. I appreciate hey, no problem. It. Have a great rest of your day, Linda. Thanks. Okay, you too. Bye. 